Um, I became a Christian in 1989. Shortly after that, I understood that I should be listening to Christian music. And I really wanted, at the same time, I really wanted a CD player. Now, some of you don't even know what CD players are. Um, probably most of you. They're still around a little bit, although they're passing away. Um, my mom and my dad kept telling me, well, we're not going to, why would we buy you a CD player? You don't have any CDs. I appreciated the logic of that. So I joined, does anyone remember the um, CD clubs? You get like four for a quarter each, and then after that you have to buy some at full price. So there was a Christian one, and I ordered four CDs. One was an Amy Grant. One was a Stephen Curtis Chapman. I don't remember one of them. But one of them was a, a, a CD of hymns by a group called Second Chapter of Acts. I'd never heard of them, had no idea who they were. Um, and one of my friends saw this and said, oh, second chapter of Acts. I wonder if they're charismatic. I had no idea what that meant. Um, like not a clue. And I, you know, I listened to the CD a couple of times just to finish the story, though. My parents did not appreciate my logic at buying CDs to uh, move them to buy me a CD player. So I had to take my CDs to this girl at school who copied them on cassette tapes for me. It was quite a while till I got a CD player and it was about this big. It had played one disc and I've had to buy it at Radio Shack for about 160 bucks. And uh, just, you know, you kids appreciate what you have today. Life was hard in the early 90s. Um, but that was sort of my fir first exposure to the second chapter of Acts as this mysterious and controversial sort of issue in the church. Um, I didn't really grow up in the church, so I didn't know that there was this sort of movement within the church or part of the church known as charismatic or Pentecostal Christians. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, but we were Baptists, and um, that's kind of all I knew. All the churches I'd been to growing up, BBS and things like that, church events with friends were all at kind of Baptist churches, so I had no idea that there was this other sort of thing that was going on. Ironically, the closest church to my home was an Assembly of God church, um, but I, it was just a mysterious place. I knew a few kids in school who went there. And, and the, the longer I had been a Christian and was involved in church, I would kind of overhear people talking about the charismatics and the Pentecostals and the gift of tongues and different things like that, that my church didn't practice. And my church wasn't big fans of those who did. So I, my early experience with this was mostly negative. Um, my first direct experience with this issue was uh, at a kind of a, a, a citywide youth rally that I spoke at. 
And after I was done speaking, we broke up into these prayer groups. And I was praying with some of the kids, my classmates, who were from the Assembly of God Church. And I just remember being very shocked and confused and somewhat um, annoyed and distracted. Maybe distracted is the best word by, by this these two girls who, while I was praying in this group, were like muttering these things that I couldn't understand. Um, that was my first direct experience with something like we see going on in the second chapter of Acts. Maybe some of you came out of Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. The difference is this, um, just so you know, they're not, they don't mean the same thing. So a Pentecostal church is more like a denomination. It's like a set of beliefs about certain things, and they believe strongly in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues and various other, what, what are called the sign gifts that we see in the New Testament. Um, but they are sort of their own denomination, like you might talk about the Southern Baptists or the, the Evangelical Lutherans or something like that. Charismatic is more of just a descriptive word. They, they share in common the beliefs that all the gifts we see in the New Testament are should be normal and, and active today. But you can have charismatic Baptist churches. There are charismatic Orthodox churches. There are charismatic Catholic churches. Um, there are probably charismatic versions of almost every Christian denomination that there is. So that's just a, a distinction to be made there between Pentecostal and charismatic. So I, I had a kind of a, a hard introduction to this issue as a young believer. And I, I don't know where any of you really have experienced this. I've, I've, you know, I've known people in churches that don't practice some of these gifts who came out of churches who did that had bad experiences so I'm, I'm not objective in how I approach this. I try really hard to be, but um, I just want to mention some helpful resources. These are some things that have helped my thinking over the years. There are three books, um, one written by a, well, I'll save that one for the last, one written by an Anglican uh, New Testament scholar called Open to the Spirit. It's a new book. I think published just about a year ago, maybe. Um, the author's name is Scott McKnight, and he's a professor at uh, Western Seminary in Chicago suburbs. He is an Anglican. He does. He has never spoken in tongues or anything like that, but the point of his book is that he's open to it. He's open to the Spirit. Um, another book written by a charismatic Christian, a phenomenal New Testament scholar by the name of, um, his name just slipped my mind. It'll come to me. Uh, the book is called The Empowering Presence, and it's about, I don't know, 1,200 pages on the Holy Spirit. He's an excellent writer. It's actually, I haven't, I've never finished it, but I would say it's an easy read. I mean, he's such a gifted writer and communicator and a legitimate scholar. Um, Bruce Metzger, I think, is the author of that one. 
And then the last book is written by a New Testament scholar, a professor in Dallas, who believes that most of those sign gifts um, have ceased and aren't to be normative in the church today. So we've got some different perspectives going on there. And that book is called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? And it's by Daniel B. Wallace. Um, and it's really a collection of essays written by different pastors and scholars about the neglect of the Holy Spirit in the non-charismatic church. And he wrote an essay published elsewhere, but also published in this book. And I, I the title of it caught me right away. And the title of his essay is um, The Uneasy Conscience of a Non-Charismatic Evangelical. So he is non-charismatic, though as a, a younger Christian, as a teenager, he that wasn't his experience. But he came to believe that some of these gifts... Um, aren't normative for the church today, but um, he was uneasy about his experience with the Holy Spirit, and he relays his story of how he had come pretty much, um, he he puts it in in this in these terms, he said he had a woman come up to him after a, after a lecture he gave or a sermon he delivered as a guest at a church, and something about the Trinity, and she said, well, I believe in the Trinity too, the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. And he came to realize that he had replaced the Holy Spirit with, with this. And he went through a series of events, including the, uh, his son being diagnosed with a really rare form of cancer, when he found no comfort in everything that he knew about the, about the Bible. And he knew a lot and knows a lot. And that sort of moved him to explore this issue of how non-charismatics relate to the Holy Spirit. Um, when Amber and I were fairly newly married, we were in that basement apartment, so we'd been married like a year or two. I was about that long out of Bible college and thought, I'm going to tackle this issue. So I set up a little card table and I had my Greek New Testament and my lexicon and a couple of commentaries I had. And I even went to the local bookstore and bought a commentary by uh, a charismatic publisher. And thought, I'm going to read both sides of this thing and I'm going to study Acts chapter 2 in the Greek and really figure this out. That didn't last long. Um and I just say all that to say this. Our take on Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 15, where Paul talks about these gifts, um, has a lot more to do often than someone sitting down with the Bible and studying what the Bible says. Like a lot of issues, it, has, it brings our tradition or our rejection of our tradition, um, even our personalities into play. And so I, I just say all that, again, to say that um, I want to do my best to be very gracious with the diversity of views on this topic. Um, and it all goes back to that CD I bought for a quarter that probably ended up costing me like 50 or 60 bucks in the end, the second chapter of Acts. 
So let me read for you verses 1 through 13. Now when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And tongues spreading out like a fire appeared to them and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem. <coughs> when this sound occurred, a crowd gathered and was in confusion, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Completely baffled, they said, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and the province of Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages about the great deeds God has done. All were astounded and greatly confused, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others jeered at the speakers, saying, They are drunk on new wine. So in crafting and constructing this sermon, my goal was really to, to do it in such a way that I could deliver this sermon in a church that believes that those gifts, tongues, we can add to them. Paul tells us some other ones, you know, prophecy, healing, those sorts of sign gifts, that those have absolutely ceased and shouldn't be practiced in the church today. I could deliver this sermon in a church like that. I could also go to a church who believes that the practice of those things are absolutely normal and should be done every time, all the time the church meets. So that's my goal. I hope I'm uh, uh, fair and um, that this message can, can speak to anyone, regardless of their particular take on some of these more controversial issues. So what I want to look at are four things this text tells us about the Spirit. Four things this text tells us about the Holy Spirit. We talked in chapter 1 about the preparation for the Holy Spirit. What this group of followers of Jesus did to prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now he comes. So there are four relationships or four associations I want to make. The first is the Spirit and Pentecost. Luke tells us that this event occurred on the day of Pentecost. Many of you might automatically associate that word Pentecost with the Holy Spirit because of this event, and you should. But did the Spirit just happen to descend on the day of Pentecost? Is it just an incidental detail, or is there more going on? So I want to take a look at Pentecost itself. So the day of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. Recall the Passover... Um, remembered and celebrated the deliverance of the Jews from their enslavement under Pharaoh in Egypt. God had commanded Moses to tell the people to take the blood from a slain lamb, spread it 
around the door of their home so that this final plague, this angel of death, would pass over their home, sparing the life of the firstborn son in each home that did this. This event marked the decisive blow to Pharaoh's hold on the freedom of the Jews. So what happened 50 days after this? There's some debate about what Pentecost exactly um, represents or points to. Um, it was initially an agricultural celebration. It was uh, a feast whose timing depended on the harvest, but it also came to say something about Moses, the Passover, and the giving of the law. So I'm going to explore both of those, actually. Fifty days after the Passover, Moses would ascend a mountain to meet with God. And then he would descend that mountain with the law. The law had multiple functions, but to put it succinctly, the law revealed a way for God's people to live that reflected his nature, his character. Now we have Jesus, the new and better Moses. He also ascends, not a mountain, but into the presence of his Father. And while Jesus doesn't descend with the law to bring, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the presence of Jesus, who is here with us this morning and always, the Holy Spirit descends. But he doesn't come down to bring a law written on tablets of stone. He comes down to etch a new way to live on our hearts. So there's this connection between Pentecost, the giving of the law, of Moses ascending and descending the mountain to Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit's descension to bring us what we could call a new law, a new way of living in the presence of God and his kingdom. But as I said, Pentecost also had an agricultural association. At Pentecost, farmers would bring their first sheaf of wheat to make a sacrifice to the Lord. This served two purposes. First, it was an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord um, for the provision of food that he's made expressing thanks that their crops grew. Second, it served as a prayer that the rest of the harvest would be as successful as the first fruits were. And I see that the Holy Spirit serves similar purposes. First of all, he is a sign of the beginning of something new. Not a new harvest of grain, but a new way of living for the people of God, a way that God sustains and nourishes his people. Second, as the first sheaf of grain was a prayer for more to come, so the coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign and an assurance of things to come. In Ephesians, Paul calls the Holy Spirit our 
down payment on our inheritance. In fact, the Greek word he uses there, the word erebone, in modern Greek means an engagement ring. So think about that connection. It's a surety. It's a down payment. It's a certain promise. And the Spirit is our certain promise on things to come. But crucial here in understanding this purpose of the Holy Spirit is to look at a difference between the Holy Spirit and the first sheaf of grain. The Holy Spirit is not our prayer for more to come, but again, it's God's promise for more to come. And what more is coming? Much more. Much more. But I believe that what's primarily in view here is our own resurrection. The soon coming day of the Lord when he will raise those who have trusted in him with new bodies to live in a new heaven and a new earth that the Father and the Son are preparing. So Pentecost gives us the Spirit as a new way of living, which we'll see played out in the life of the early church and as a guarantee of more to come. There's one more significant function of Pentecost that tells us that the coming of the Holy Spirit didn't just happen to occur at this particular time. Pentecost was a pilgrimage feast. This means that Jews spread far and wide would, if able to, travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Luke tells us in verses 9 and 10 that Jews and proselytes, and proselytes were uh, converts to Judaism. So they weren't born Jewish, they converted to Judaism. He tells us that Jews and proselytes from more than a dozen different nations were present at this event. They came for Pentecost. And from their perspective, with Jerusalem as the center of geography, the list that Luke gives us tells us that people from the north and the south and the east and the west are gathered together. Is this not still the work of the Holy Spirit to bring God's people from the north, the south, the east, and the west to be called to worship and to service, to bring unity in the midst of diversity? However, as we'll see in the coming weeks, the Spirit doesn't unite diverse believers to form some kind of exclusive club. He brings them together to start a movement that will spread to the ends of the earth. And that's the story that Acts tells. So from the spirit and the significance of Pentecost, we now move to the action of this passage. The spirit and to this gift of tongues or languages. What happens is very clear and easy to imagine, right? Not really. The sound of a violent wind fills this upper room. Tongues spreading like fire appear and rest upon them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in languages they didn't know as the Spirit enabled them. What this event looked like and what it sounded like and what that experience would have been like, we really don't know. Luke has done his best to show us, to tell us, 
but he does so with images. It reminds me of when you're trying to explain like a really cool dream you just had. And as you start explaining it, like it doesn't make sense. And the best you can do is to sort of use images and the person you're telling it to never quite gets what you experienced in that dream. Yet even though we can only imagine what this event was like, what is clear is its effect. There's a diverse crowd who hears those who are in this upper room, but they hear them speaking in their own language. So if you were a Jew and you lived in Egypt for whatever reason, and you had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and you happened to be walking by this building when the Holy Spirit descended on those gathered there, you would have heard them speaking in your own language. Maybe Coptic. Coptic was a, a, a common language in Egypt during this time. Yet the person standing next to you from Rome would have heard the same thing in Latin. That's the effect. Now, this seems to be different, and this causes a lot of confusion when you undertake the study of this issue, different from the gift of tongues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 12 to 15. There, Paul says clearly that this gift of tongues requires an interpretation to edify the church. Here, however, no interpreter, no translator is required. So it's a little bit different, maybe quite a bit different. So the question I ask now, does this kind of manifestation of the presence and filling of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in languages that we didn't learn to people who needed to hear it in their language, does it still occur today? My answer is that I think it does, though some would disagree. But I think there are just too many stories from very reliable people about how someone was enabled to speak a language they didn't know in order to communicate the great deeds of God to someone in their own language. Almost 20 years ago, Amber and I were living in Galveston, and there were some, I guess for lack of a better term, traveling missionaries that came through. There were a couple, but not a couple. It was a college-age guy and gal they weren't like dating or anything but they were together traveling around to different churches i don't even remember why but we had them over for dinner and they told us the story i think it was the gal i have no idea what her name is but she told us the story of her i believe it was her sister who went on a missions trip to russia did not speak russian and that she was enabled by the holy spirit to share the gospel with the russian woman influent Russian. I'm not sure I believed that story then, but I think I do now. I've also always wondered if the miracle was in the speaking or in the hearing, right? Although, how would you know the difference? <laughs> I think, however, there is significance in the speaking, the speaking of languages played a significant role in an event that occurred almost, or actually over 2,000 years prior to this Pentecost event. 
just before God, a couple of hundred years maybe, before God called Abraham to follow him. But in Genesis, it's only one chapter before God calls Abraham. Let me read it for you. It's in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. The whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. And the Lord said, If as one people, all sharing a common language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there across the face of the entire earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the entire world, and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. So when humanity wanted to make a great name for itself by building a city and a tower, Instead of making God's name great by filling the earth, as they should have, God came down, looked at their cute little tower, which, by the way, was designed so that God could come down. It's, it's a very funny story uh, in the details. They're building this tower so that God can go up and down. While they're doing this, God does come down. And he kind of looks at their cute little tower. He confuses their language and he scatters them. So 2,000 plus years later, God creates the church. And he does so initially by unscattering the people. They've all come to Jerusalem. He unconfuses their languages. And then ultimately, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he sends them to the ends of the earth to make his name great. Don't miss this point. With the advent of the Holy Spirit, the curse of Genesis 11 is being reversed. In fact, one of the themes that we'll look at periodically throughout Acts is how the Spirit enables and empowers the church to reverse the curse, not only of Genesis 11, but also of Genesis 3. Specifically, the Spirit enables and empowers the restoration of both the vertical relationship between God and people and the horizontal relationships between one another. That's a theme we'll see throughout Acts, is the reversal of the curse that resulted from sin. So even if the second chapter of Acts isn't something we ever experience personally, even if it remains just a story, an inspired story, a true story, that we read about in the New Testament, 
Or maybe it's just something we hear about from missionaries who are in contexts where uh, a manifestation of the presence of the Spirit is required. If we're only hearing about it, it remains for us to make sure that we are a people who, through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, go about the task of telling the mighty deeds of God, of making his name great, of spreading the message of his kingdom. That message, when heard and believed, can restore both vertical and horizontal relationships. We must be a people. We must be a church who uses its time and its resources to play our part in undoing this curse that resulted from sin. We do that with a message and a display of redemption and of eternal life. So that's the spirit and the gift of tongues. I've already mentioned my third point several times, so this will be a little bit brief. But I want us to take a closer look at the connection between the spirit and the glory of God. Regardless of your belief about the kinds of gifts of the Holy Spirit that we should uh, practice today, there is an abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that occurs when whatever gifts being used point to the person using the gift. When they point to the self. If I'm claiming to be acting at the impetus of the Holy Spirit, but the result is that I'm making my name great, that I am pointing toward my own mighty deeds, then I have been neither enabled nor empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look closely at the end of verse 11. Those in the crowd who heard the apostles and followers of Jesus speak in their own language, they heard about the mighty deeds of God. I would love to know what specifically they heard. What mighty deeds of God? But I think we get a good idea of maybe what they heard as we look throughout the books of Acts, the book of Acts, at the uh, sermons and the speeches given by, especially by Peter, Stephen, and Paul. What you'll notice as we go through this is that their presentation of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, looks very little like most messages of the gospel today. And I'm kind of excited to go through some of those with you. But in giving their evangelistic sermons, they are proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. To give God glory is to speak and to share of the things he has done. To speak and share them with each other. I think also to speak and to share them with God himself. When and where the Spirit is moving and working, less is made of us and more is made of God and what he has done. So our message, just like this very, really first message, this proclamation of God's mighty deeds, is not ourselves, no matter what language we're speaking, but our message is God and the work that he has done through Jesus 
to rescue us and to make us into his people. The last point I want to make this morning about the coming of the Holy Spirit is the association of the work of the Spirit with rejection. Look at verse 13. There were some who, instead of glorifying God for the proclamation of his mighty deeds, or even instead of being confused about the significance of what happened, as some were, there are some who jeer those whom the Spirit has enabled to speak. And they blame what they've heard, they blame what has happened on the followers of Jesus being drunk. So if we read between the lines a little bit, it seems like what has happened is maybe they've not heard anyone speaking in their language. They've only heard the slurred, senseless babbling of drunkards. So when and where the Holy Spirit moves and acts, some will respond with rejection. This theme of rejection to the acts and to the purposes of God is not new. It happened to Jesus. It, going back, it happened to David. Going back a little further, it happened to Moses. We can go back and back. It's a theme that there are always those who reject the acts of God, the purposes of God. So it should also maybe happen to us. Not that we should seek rejection. I hope no one made a New Year's resolution to be more rejected in 2020. I can't imagine a, a church constructing a mission or a purpose statement that would include being rejected. Something like, the mission of Hillside Bible Chapel is to make Jesus known in our community and throughout the world and to be increasingly rejected. It doesn't uh, sound right. It doesn't flow well. We don't seek rejection. We seek only to proclaim the mighty deeds of God as his people. However, the New Testament makes it clear that rejection and even persecution is a likely expectation, a likely outcome of fulfilling this great commission. Notice carefully, though, where the rejection comes from. It comes from those who know the mighty acts of God. It comes from Jews present in Jerusalem for Pentecost. As we will see later, the rejection of those who do hear of the mighty deeds of God comes from a result, ultimately, of claiming that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord. It's not a rejection of the historicity of the mighty acts of God, like the Exodus or something like that. It's a rejection that all of this expectation and longing is fulfilled in Jesus, and that, in fact, Jesus is not only Messiah, but that he is also Lord. And we'll see this throughout Acts, this theme of rejection. Some Christians are rejected extensively today. But it's not always because they are proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. Uh, some Christians are rejected because they're just jerks. They're just rude. They're full of hate and anger. 
Some are rejected because they've lost sight of Jesus and the characteristics of his kingdom and have instead adopted the power and the influence that the world uses. So regarding rejection, there are two dangers to avoid. The first is to assume that any rejection is a sign that what we are doing is the Spirit's work. You see, if we're doing the Spirit's work, some degree of rejection should be an expectation. But just because there is rejection doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing the Spirit's work. Maybe we're just rude. I don't mean we. I know none of us are. I just mean a very generic we. (laughs) The other uh, danger to avoid is to assume that any rejection is a sign that we're doing something wrong. To, to, To... We want to avoid assuming that any rejection is a sign that we are doing something wrong. So those are the two dangers to avoid with this idea of rejection. So to summarize all this, I've kind of restated what I've said already into four statements, each followed by a question or two. The first is this, when and where the Spirit moves... The curse is in the process of being reversed. When and where the Spirit moves, the curse is in the process of being reversed. And the question is this, how are we contributing to that process? How are we contributing to that process? Sometime go back and take a look at the curse that results from the fall of its characteristics and see what you are doing, see what we are doing through the enablement and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to begin to play our part in the process of reversing those things. Second, when and where the Spirit moves, a new way of living is demonstrated, exhibited particularly by a confidence in the guarantee of things to come. When and where the Spirit moves, a new way of living is demonstrated. And we display this new way of living, especially by the confidence we have that the Spirit is indeed the down payment on our inheritance. How are we displaying a new way? Was the first question to this point. How are we displaying a new way? I've talked about this multiple number of times, but we need to avoid the danger of just applying the Christian adjective to whatever it is we would be doing anyway. Calling something a Christian whatever doesn't mean it's a new way. So how are we displaying a new way? How do our works display the certainty of our inheritance? How do our works display the certainty of our inheritance? Third, when and where the Spirit moves, God is glorified through the proclamation of his mighty deeds. When and where the Spirit moves, God is glorified through the proclamation of his mighty deeds. And my question related to the third point is this. Who is getting the glory 
for our efforts? Who is getting the glory for our efforts? And the fourth, when and where the Spirit moves, some will reject this offer of the kingdom. When and where the Spirit moves, some will reject the offer of his kingdom. And my question here is, how are we assessing rejection? Does rejection discourage us that we're doing something wrong? Is rejection, at the other end of it, is rejection just a blanket sign that everything we're doing is right? I think we need to practice wisdom to see if the rejection we are experiencing is for one reason or another. So I hope and I pray that my dealing with this dissension of the Holy Spirit upon these followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2 was fair. I hope and pray it was encouraging to you, regardless of your opinions on um, maybe how things should be carried out today. And... uh, As one New Testament scholar says, every Christian finds his meaning in what happens at Pentecost, in what happened at Pentecost. Every Christian finds his meaning at what happened at Pentecost. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that we would look at the gift of your Holy Spirit as truly that. It's a gift. It's a result of your grace. And it's a gift that we desperately need, that we wouldn't be the church without it. It's so foundational. Lord, he is so foundational. And I pray that you would help us avoid the errors of neglect and abuse and help us to find a way that we live this new life that your spirit brings in a way that brings glory to you, that brings hope and the promise of eternal life to the world around us. And yet we also should expect that there will be rejection of that message. I just ask that if and when that rejection occurs, that it's not a rejection of us, not of our personalities, or not a rejection of our methods or our, our ideas, but if there's going to be rejection, that it's a rejection of you as Lord not of us and our faults and our inadequacies. And we need your help to do this. Lord, I pray that Hillside Bible Chapel will be a a community, a culture of, of, of people full of flaws and errors, but who exemplify the movement of your spirit Uh, a community that gives you glory, a community that's a beacon of love and of hope and of forgiveness to those around us. 
and again all for your glory to make your name great that we would become less that you would increase in the life of this church in jesus name amen